text for this morning's sermon is Psalm 50. We've read it together already. And then after the sermon, we'll respond by singing hymn 76. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is true worship? What are we doing when we worship God? Are we doing God a favor Is it enough to do certain rituals at certain times? Well, God calls us together this morning to teach us again what the essence of true worship is. It's a life, which is a humble sacrifice of thanksgiving. We turn to Psalm 50 to pay attention to this this morning. Psalm 50 begins with these glorious Names of God piled one on the other. El, Elohim, Yahweh, the Mighty One, God, the Covenant Lord. He's Almighty, Sovereign Creator, but He's also Faithful, Loving Father. You remember, children, how in Genesis chapter 2, Moses puts those two names of God together. Elohim, the great God and Creator, and Yahweh. The covenant God, the one who relates to us in Christ. You remember, we've been looking at Genesis. The whole universe was created as a temple for his glory. And now God calls that universe to witness. Something's going to happen. And the entire creation has to pay attention. And then we get to verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines Forth. Where do you find God in this world? You find him manifesting his power and majesty in creation, but you find him more gloriously yet in Zion. That's where the cloud of glory dwells in the Holy of Holies. That cloud of the Lord's glorious presence, which the rabbis call the Shekinah. God living in the midst of his people. He's behind all kinds of firewalls and protections because a holy God living in the midst of a sinful people, that's not going to work out very well for the sinful people. So he's all protected and behind the veil, and behind the sacrifices, and behind the washings, and the, the rituals, and protected by the priests. Not that God needs protection, but the sinners need protection from him. But there he is, in Zion. If you want to come into the presence of God, that's where you need to be. Where is Zion now? What does the apostle write to the Ephesians in chapter 2? That the church is a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. Ever since Pentecost, the glorious presence of God, the Shekinah glory, has not been in the Holy of Holies in a temple in Jerusalem. But he lives and dwells in the church of God, Zion. When we sing about Zion in the Psalms, we're singing about the church. We're singing about the temple of God, which temple we 
are. We're living stones built into that temple. And Zion is the perfection of beauty, says the psalmist. Not because Jerusalem was the most amazing city in the world or the most architecturally impressive. Zion is the perfection of beauty because that's where God is. That is the dwelling place of God. And the church isn't the perfection of beauty because we have really nice buildings or because we're really good people. But the church is the perfection of beauty in and through the Lord Jesus Christ because God manifests himself to the world, makes himself present and near in and through the church. His glory His grace shine forth. Because that's where his spirit dwells. And that's where his word is. That's where he speaks. You know, some people say, well, I like going to church. But I can go to a mountain lake and sit in my my kayak and I I can worship God in creation. And it sounds really... Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Maybe sounds more interesting than sitting in a a pew. But is it true? Well, it's not. There is no way to more closely experience the presence of God than to come to his temple to come to where his spirit dwells and where he speaks. And if I decide to go kayaking instead of coming to hear God speak, then I'm turning my back on God and I'm despising the word and the sacraments. And that's not a good idea. So our God comes. He does not keep silence. He is a speaking God. We know that from the beginning of Scripture. He speaks. And he is surrounded by fire and by storm, by by tempest. There is an overwhelming glory and power which is unbearable for mere mortals. And then in verse 4, he calls to the heavens above. And to the earth that he may judge his people. God is setting up a courtroom scene here. And all of creation has to be witness. God will judge. Now, who is God going to judge? And we love to think about, yeah, God's going to judge the bad people. But what does it say? God will judge his people. Judgment begins with the house of God. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, barely saved, what does that mean for the, the wicked and ungodly? He says in verse 5, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now, Hebrew is a very simple language, and the verb system isn't very complex. The verbs basically tell you if something has happened or if something hasn't happened yet. And there is actually no present tense in ancient Hebrew. There's a future and a past, or what are kind of like a future and a past. So when the Holy Spirit wants to describe something that's ongoing and present, he uses a special form of the verb. He uses a participle. 
And that's what we have here. Gather to me my faithful ones whom... And then it kind of reads literally, who are covenant makers with me by sacrifice. This is not something that has happened, that will happen. This is something that is. This describes the relationship. God's people are not people that, yeah, in the past they made some covenant. No, God's people are people that are covenanting with God all the time. You see, the covenant was not just something that happened in the past, but Every time God's people came into his presence, the covenant was renewed. There in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, children, do you remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant? A bunch of things, but one of the things there was also the tablets of stone upon which were written the ten words of the covenant. So every time there was worship in the temple, God was renewing his covenant with his people. He would go to the temple. Now, what would they get there? Well, Malachi 2.7 tells us that the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. They wouldn't just do sacrifices. They would hear teaching of the law, the word of God. Deuteronomy 33.10 tells us that the Levites, the priests who are Levites, they will teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. What did the priests do? They taught. What did they teach? The law that was preaching. What did they do? They put incense before God. And that represented prayer, the prayers of God's people. And what else did they do? They offered sacrifices. Those are the sacraments. Preaching, prayer, and sacraments. That was part of covenant renewal worship that happened all the time in the temple there in Jerusalem. And it's the same thing today in the new covenant. New covenant worship, we have the law, the word of God, the preaching, the prayer. We have the word and the sacraments, all of it focusing on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In the Old Testament, the covenant kept saying to people, someone has to die so that you can be reconciled to God. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, all of worship says somebody did die and has restored you and reconciled you to God. So God calls these covenanting people together They've got a relationship with God based on blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And then heaven stands up and announces the entrance of the judge. You know, when you go to a courtroom, hopefully we don't have to do that too often, but maybe you're on jury duty and when the judge walks in, all rise. So heaven says, here is God the judge and declares his righteousness. Everything's set. Everything's ready for the judgment. And then we have this little word in italics in our Bible. Some of our Bibles put them in italics at the end of verse 6. Selah. And scholars scratch their heads over this word and there are all kinds of ideas about it. And we really don't know exactly. But more or less, Selah tells us that this kind of a pause. It's kind of a break. We don't know exactly what kind of break, but it's a poetical uh, indicate, indicator. And possibly this signaled a time of instrumental music, kind of a pause before the, the psalm moves on to 
the next words. Everything's ready, and there's a pregnant pause here. And then verse 7. Here are my people, I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. Terrifying words when God says to us, I have a problem with you. I mean, we have that at home, right? If mom says, or if dad says, come and speak to me, uh, I need to talk to you. Or husbands, probably some of the worst words for us to hear are when our wives say, we need to talk. It's not pleasant. We're like, what's going on? What's wrong? Or how much more when God says, I've got something against you. And he reminds them. He says, oh, my people, I am God, your God. You live in a relationship with me of total dependence and total worship. You owe me everything. And there's something wrong. What's wrong? Well, we get a surprise in verse 8 because it's not the, the worship which is wrong. He says, I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. There's not a problem with outward ritual here. Things are going well. You're doing all the things that the law commands. The problem is not there. What is the problem? Well, the problem is outlined in verses 9 through 13. Well, here's the problem. I am not a poor, hungry God hoping that you'll remember to feed me and give me my treats like some kind of domestic animal, some kind of pet. Here's the problem. You need to understand who feeds whom, who depends on whom, who needs whom. You see, in the ancient world, and there are ancient texts still today that we can read, the gods made men to serve them food. There's some interesting stories to illustrate that. One of them is in the apocryphal part of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel has a few extra chapters which which are spurious. They're not inspired. They were added later. We don't have them in our Bibles because they're not the word of God. But they tell some interesting stories. They're fun to read, the apocryphal books. And in one of these apocryphal chapters, uh, people are trying to figure out what's going on because uh, there's a temple and people are are putting food before the, the, the gods in the temple And then the next day, the food is gone. And people are saying, see, the God is eating the food at nights. And then Daniel says, well, watch this. And he he puts flour on the floor of the temple. And the next morning, the food's gone, but there are footprints in the flour. The footprints of the priests who were going to take the food, and they were eating it themselves. And so Daniel exposes how ridiculous it is to think that the idols, the The statues are actually eating the offerings of the worshipers. God is basically saying, don't treat me like some two-bit idol that the nations are serving. I am God. I am the creator of heaven and earth. I own everything. I give you everything. What do I want from you? I don't want you to come into my presence thinking you're doing me a favor. I don't want you to come into my presence thinking that I'm just waiting with bated breath to see what you're going to do for me today. What do I want? Well, look at verse 14. 
I want a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I want you to perform your vows. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. God's saying, I, I want you just to give me thankfulness. That's what I want from you. Well, this is very surprising because Asaph is the psalmist here, and Asaph is, is a Levite. And the Levite's daily job is to work in the sacrificial system. Asaph is preaching himself out of a job here. Because he's saying that the sacrifices really aren't the, the real deal. He's telling us that the heart of true worship, and, and that's the heart of the psalm as well, is to come into the presence of God in total dependence, to cry out to him, to call upon him, to ask him for help, to glorify him for his salvation, to offer thanksgiving, to perform vows. What does that mean, perform vows? Well, when God's people were in trouble, they would often cry out to God and say, God, if you, if you deliver me, I'll do this or do that. You think of Hannah saying, oh Lord, I can't have a child. And if you do give me a child, I'll dedicate my child to you. I'll, I'll bring him to the tabernacle to, to serve you. It's all very nice, but lots of people in the Old Testament would make promises, make vows, and then when God gave them deliverance and heard their prayers, they kind of conveniently neglected to fulfill those vows. And God's saying, don't be like that. Don't do that. Look at Psalm 116 for a moment. Psalm 116, uh, verses 12 to 14. We see that dynamic happening there. Psalm 116, verse 12 to 14. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Look at 17 through to 19. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. That's what God wants. That's the kind of worship that God is looking for. And this anticipates New Testament worship. But read in the Old Testament, the prophets and the psalmists, they knew very well that the outward structure of the sacrificial system was not the real deal. It was something which was pointing to a more important reality, which Jesus introduces us to in the New Testament, that worship in spirit and truth, which Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices that he speaks to the Thessalonians about in first letter Thessalonians chapter 5 he says rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you what does all this mean it means that God doesn't want or need our routine worship God doesn't need our muttered prayers and amens that we do thoughtlessly. God doesn't need worship which is mindless rote. God doesn't need us to crack open the Bible and just rip off a psalm early in the morning or a couple of proverbs and then zoom off to work without it even entering our minds, let alone our hearts. God doesn't want it. God doesn't need it. God wants our 
hearts. He wants our love and worshiping God is all or nothing. Now we're foolish. Sinners are foolish by nature. And we get caught up in the externals. The things that really aren't the most important. And if I can use a bit of an analogy here, it's kind of like we're we're filthy people fastidiously setting out a bath. And we make sure that it's the water's the perfect temperature. And the right soap is in the right place with the shampoo there and the towels over there and the water level is right and, and we do everything in the right order. First we put the plug in, then we fill the tub. Everything done is everything is done perfectly. Every day we do the same things. But there's one thing we never do. We never jump in. And so we stay filthy. So what's the use? The psalmist is basically saying, jump in, the water's fine. It feels good to be clean. And when you feel good and when you feel clean, then you break out into praise and thankfulness to the one who has provided the means for the cleansing. Have you jumped in? Or do you spend your life arranging the soap and the towels in just the right way? We go on to verse 16. Verses 16 through 21. God is telling us that it's not just what's inside that counts. But what's outside also counts. You see, God wants our prayer. God wants our praise. God wants our love. And that's all the disposition of the soul and the heart before God. But that has consequences. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 17 for a second. Romans 2, 17, where the apostle describes kind of a heartless, formalist Old Testament worship. Romans 2, 17 to 24. But if you call yourself a Jew, so that's a covenant a member of the covenant people of God, and rely on the law, boast in God, know his will, approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you hear the echoes of Psalm 50 here? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So it's possible to be fervent. 
It's possible to be excited about God's word and about worship. But at the same time to fool yourself because it doesn't reflect in a life transformed by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And a life which has fervent lips and happening worship, but no growth and sanctification, is a life which is blasphemy against God and brings shame on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You get all excited about worship. You be happy. Your heart can swell. You can be humble in prayer and exultant in praise. And then, and then what do you do? You cast my words behind you, says the Lord in verse 17. You just leave it behind because your life doesn't change. You're too busy praising God to be holy. Too busy praising God to be holy. Does that sound kind of weird? Well, it is. But it happens way too much. I remember many years ago, in a Christian high school, Christian band showed up, young men and women. They were going to sing. They were going to lead praise and worship, rolled up on their tour bus. They'd been traveling overnight, so the school principal said, would you like to know where the, the locker rooms are so you can take a shower and get ready? There are the boys' rooms. There are the girls' rooms. Go for it. They said, no need. And they all went into the same showers together. Too busy praising God to be holy. It happens more than you think. But let's not look at other people. This psalm, this word is directed to us. Do our hearts swell in joy and exultant praise and worship? And then do we cast the word behind us in our daily lives? As we delight in easy money and unethical dealings, as we take pleasure in impure videos or activities, as we swear and curse on the job site, as we don't speak truth, but we speak what people want to hear or what will cover up my sin and my shame, as we gossip and tear down and slander even those who should, we should most love and care for, family, and brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look carefully, please, at what the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is doing here. He puts stealing and adultery and gossip on the same level. These are things which do not belong in the life of those who have been redeemed by Christ and who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And in my personal experience, gossip and speaking trash about one another is one of the greatest tools of Satan to destroy the communion of saints and the joy of God's people, the unity of God's people. And don't let it happen. Verse 21 these things you have done, I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. You ever had that? You, you're indulging in a favorite little sin. 
And it seems like there are no consequences. We can go on for a long time fooling ourselves, covering up our sin. And when God doesn't come with immediate judgment, we think, well, you know, I'm baptized. I'm a covenant child of God. I, I love Jesus. I, I pray for the forgiveness of my sins. And I guess God just kind of understands that I just need to hold on to this one sin in my life. He's not doing anything about it. He hasn't exposed it. He hasn't brought my life crashing down around my head. God says, these things you have done, I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Don't make the mistake of thinking that God is like you, that he doesn't have a problem with your sin. He has a problem. I rebuke you, he says. I lay the charge before you. And now pay attention, he says. Pay attention then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Now, this is a little bit awkward, isn't it? God is not very Canadian. He's not very polite. He's not very nice. God is a consuming fire, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. Seeing God. He says, if you don't pay attention to me, I will rip you to pieces. The word he uses is the word that is used in the scriptures for lions and wild animals that come and just rip their victims apart. Is this our God? Is there a reason why we avoid singing the psalm verses which speak about his terrible anger? and judgment against unrepentant sinners because it makes us uncomfortable. It doesn't fit with the God that we make in our own image. The very nice God in the sky is a little bit like Santa Claus with a wink and a nod. He says, I understand. Nobody can be perfect. We all make mistakes. It's not who God is. If you have planted a vegetable garden at the beginning of the summer and the spring, and all summer long, all it's producing is weeds, what are you going to do to that veggie garden? And there may come the time you say, I'm going to get the rototiller. I'm going to till this all up. I'm going to take it down because it's not working. Well, God put Adam together from the ground. And if man doesn't do what he was created to do, then God will take him apart again. He will separate his soul from his body. It's just a law of the universe. Let me come to verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And and we say, wow, this sounds a little bit Armenian. So you offer thanksgiving, you glorify God, you live the right way, and then God shows you salvation. So it sounds like you're doing things, and then at the end, God saves you. Well, no. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Thanksgiving is not the beginning. It's not the cause, but it's the result. 
If we're giving thanks to God, it's because he did something first, didn't he? He saved us. He set his name upon us. He's chosen us to be his people. He's called us to worship him. He's given us new hearts. And when he does things like that, then we erupt in thanksgiving. God calls us to a life of true worship, a humble sacrifice of thanksgiving. Well, what does that look like? If God has come into our life, and God has cleared away the darkness, and he's washed away the filth, what does that look like? Well, it looks like a life of ordering your way rightly. There's a reason why in the catechism, in the third part, which deals with thankfulness, we learn from the Ten Commandments because living a life which is rightly ordered is a life in which the Spirit works more and more love for holiness, more and more delight to live according to the will of God, not my will. That's what salvation looks like. And the more we live in the renewing power of the Spirit, the more our desires and passions and priorities are changed by him, the more we see what salvation looks like. The more we see who salvation looks like. That last verse there, verse 23, the salvation of God. In the Hebrew, the verb is yeshah. And it's the root of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrew, Yeshua. Hear the same consonants, children? Yeshua. Yeshua. I will show the salvation of God. I will show what it looks like. I will show who it looks like. Because more and more as we live in the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, we are sure and certain in Christ of who we are. We are seated in the heavenly places in him. We are sanctified in him. We bear upon our heads his holy name. And you remember Abraham, when he first made covenant with God, God told him, rip the animals into pieces. And and then God went through the middle of the pieces. That's how covenants were made back in those days. And the idea was, if you break this covenant, then you're going to be ripped in pieces like these animals. As we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he was torn apart instead of us. His body and soul were ripped apart as he died on the cross, the death that we should have died. So how do we do thanksgiving? We rejoice always. We pray without ceasing. We give thanks in all circumstances. Acts of worship in the Christian life are not rote or mindless repetition, but they are deliberate acts arising out of a humble heart which knows who we are, what we deserve, what Christ has done for us. And therefore, every act of worship is heartfelt, overflowing with joy and praise and thankfulness. And this in turn overflows into a life which loves and seeks and grows in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is true worship? God calls us to a life of true worship, a humble sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so we thank him, don't we? On this Thanksgiving weekend, 
We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your glory in the creation of the universe, the breathtaking expanse of planets and galaxies, and your glory in the tiny little fingers and toes of a newborn baby. We thank you for the majestic beauty of music and orchestras and bands and mass choirs and in the voices of our little children singing praise in public worship. We thank you for upholding all things by the word of your power. We thank you for your providence. We thank you for the seasons following one another. We thank you that things actually still work in this fallen world and this groaning creation. And we thank you for the delights of good food, apple pies and ice cream and turkey with all the fixings and the smell of coffee first thing in the morning. And we thank you for the beauty of fall colors and the crunch of fall leaves under our feet. And we thank you for harvest in Canada and around the world and the amazing logistics chain which brings huge varieties of foods all year round to our tables. And we thank you, God, for comfort and for convenience and for delicious and abundant foods, and for family, and for friends, and for fellowship, and for marriage, and for children, and for grandchildren. And we thank you for those amongst us that you've called to live as singles, and for their unique contribution that they make with their gifts to the communion of saints as they bless us and we bless them. And we thank you for health, and for an amazing medical system when we're sick. And we thank you for parents and for children and for Christian education and for Parkland Emmanuel Christian School and for teachers who dedicate their lives teaching covenant children with sacrificial love. And we thank you for loving us in Christ when we were unlovable in our sins. We thank you for being our strength when we are weak. We thank you for being our refuge in the storm. We thank you for being our rock in a world of change and uncertainty, for setting your name on our foreheads, for calling us your people, your children, your beloved, for washing away our sin and our guilt, for giving us righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, for giving us a place in the family of God, the communion of the saints. And we thank you for giving us elders and deacons who love us and shepherd us in Christ who pastor us. We thank you for feeding us with your word, for transforming us from glory to glory after the image of Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the hard things. We thank you for affliction, which makes us more dependent on you. We thank you for the suffering which you use to sculpt us for glory. And we thank you for the valley of the shadow of death, because there we are met by the Lord Jesus, our good shepherd. We thank you that though our flesh and heart may fail, you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And we thank you for hope. We thank you that we can lift up our eyes and await from heaven, our Savior who will come again to judge the living and the dead, who will wipe every tear from our eyes, who will make all things new, and we thank you that we are one day and one week closer to the final harvest, to that day when all the elect are gathered into the church and the eternal thanksgiving feast will begin. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.